Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host, the one, the only, the legend, Alpha Stream, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, how are you doing? Hey, Sean, I feel like I can only let everyone down after that wonderful intro. Uh, but uh, I guess my big question is, is our show canonical? Uh, absolutely not. Because I don't know what I'm talking about from one week to the next. Uh, so, but, but then that's canonical. See, this is how it works. See, is that how canon works? I think so. So you also light the back end. It, exactly. Exactly. So, so Teos, uh, is referring to our discussion last week about wizards of the coast speaking in public about what is canon and what is not canon in the worlds of D and D. And, of course, after our fine discussion that we had last week, another article about this dropped this week. So that's what we're going to kick off with our news this week. Uh, Chris Perkins discussed in the D&D Studio blog um, how his team approaches canon. And I'm going to let Teos do, uh, do some of this here, uh, talking about what Chris Perkins had to say. Yeah. So Chris began it, it had this article has several sections and he began by comparing it to Marvel, which is probably a smart thing to do. Make yourself look really good that way. Um, and what he said is 5e has its own canon separate from every edition. And he called these editions expressions of D&D, which I think is a sort of helpful way to look at it. Right. You know, 4e is an expression of D&D. 5e is an expression of D&D. I think as fans, we often like to think, well, it's all one thing. And so it probably is smart to sort of separate it into this way and just say, you know, it truly is an expression. It's not all the same thing. Especially because when with rules changes, some of the lore has to change by by default because the rules right. uh, sometimes lead the, the, the lore. Um, I think about something like Undermountain. Where that came out as a you know as a first edition AD and D supplement, and just because of the rules, the way the rules were written, not everything that was done then can be done the same way now. So in fourth edition, when I'm working on Halls of Undermountain, the map looks significantly different based on how things have changed, including novels. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, certain rooms just wouldn't work as a fourth edition D and D encounter, uh, with the way they were, right. with the way that they were set up. Yeah. And, or something like the assassin class, right. Which was famously m murdered off yes. in second edition, right. both in the story and from a, actually what is in the book, right. right. It's removing that class and, yep. uh, which was part of the moral panic reaction. Right. So it's right. fascinating. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that's not rules or, even story that's public perception that causes a change yeah. and the same with with the removal of demons and devils in second edition to yeah. to Tanari and Baatsu uh you know <laughs> they they had to make, change the names to to circumvent the hysteria of the satanic panic so you know all of those things especially in a brand that's been going for 40 plus years uh needs to uh you know, needs to, to change at some point. So yeah, yeah and that's I, and interesting. I think, yeah. Yep. It's a, it's a healthy thing to say that, you know, let's look at this as an expression of D and D. Um, and what they have further clarified, which we talked about last week is five E's canon is not necessarily canonical in a novel. 
video game, movie, or comic book, and vice versa, both for lore and art. And that the point of this, or one of the points of it, is to free up contractors and partners to serve their needs without having to adhere to everything that 5e has, let alone previous mm -hmm. iterations. And what I thought was very interesting here is that what Chris said is, is kind of canon for these partner opportunities and contractors are just the three core books. And that's different than what Jeremy Crawford had said. He had said anything printed after the beginning of 5e, because he named the year, you know, 2014, I think it is. Um, he said everything after that is canonical if it's, a, you know, yeah. a, a 5e work. Mm -hmm. And and Chris said the core books. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure what that variance is in there and which applications, which conditions. Yeah. You know, well, if, if, if Chris was talking about contractors and partners as opposed to the, you know, the design team and the rules team in and of themselves, maybe that was the difference. Maybe maybe the, the internal design team, it's everything that has been published for fifth edition, but for contractors, yeah. because, you know, I, I go to wizards and I say, I want to make some sort of strange video game app. Uh, you know, th they would obviously want me to keep it as close to five as possible. But, you know, if I'm making, I, I can't even think of a, you know, uh, a sort of candy crush kind of game. Right. Do, do I do I yeah. need to have you know the the monsters look exactly like they do in the player's handbook or in the right. monster manual right so you know any of these things well and you know what's interesting when I think of that is is I think you and I have both seen these story bibles that were done in early five e and my understanding is that that isn't kind of used in the same way anymore but I don't know for sure but back then. These story Bibles, they're given out with something like Rise of Tiamat for, for a particular storyline adventure. It would go out to various partners and contractors, and it told you all about the game and told you what to use and, and things that you could throw in to make it interesting. And I love that document. Like, I thought that was so cool, full of ideas, and clearly a lot of time had been spent to set this all up to say, what is the story about? What are the elements? You know, Rise of Tiamat, you know, what are the Thayan the two sides of the cult of the dragon, what are the fans doing, you know, yeah. pulling all this together to, to create inspirational works that then feed off of that canon properly. Yeah. Um, and it, it feels like maybe they're pulling back from that, which is also very interesting. Yeah. What's, what's interesting about a story Bible is people hear that and they, they may think that it's only like, this is what is true in this particular world setting, uh, you know, brand, whatever. But a lot of times a story Bible will actually give uh, give avenues, give lines of um, creativity that partners can follow. Um, so it's almost like a suggestion for, hey, if you want to do something, here's a great story that you could tell. Um, and and so, you know, yeah. making I'm in the process of making a story Bible. So <laughs> that is that is something that's very much on my mind right now. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it is that idea of here are the parts you can play with, right? And so mm -hmm. I'm sure there's some version of that that's still happening, but but maybe it's a little retreat and, and may in part be because if Wizards of the Coast has to 
as a company double its revenue to meet its new goals that have been talked about as part of the business discussions we've been sharing, mm -hmm. then that speed at which you have to move is so much faster that you can't take a couple of months to write up a story Bible. You need to move quicker. And right. so maybe that is part of it. Too. Right. Or you can, but you just have to set aside more resources to do that in, in a, in a timely fashion. So someone maybe is writing a story Bible now that will be used two years from now. Um, so, yeah. you know, if with, with that increased revenue comes increased expenses, if you, yeah. if you want to keep, keep, keep it up and we're going to talk more about the business side of things uh, yeah. very soon. So next part, he says, why not adopt the canon of earlier editions and be done with it? Um, and the primary reason that's stated is to lessen the burden on DMs. D we don't want DMs to feel like they must read a novel, play a video game, or buy a 3E source book to enjoy the game. And that's a great point. You know, sometimes I think that uh, you can feel that way with various properties, not just D&D. &D. You can feel that way with Marvel. You can feel that way with a lot of different ways where you, if you don't know what other people know from this one show or the Star Wars, right? If you, if you miss one animated series, it's like you missed a big part of the story. That's certainly true with things like Star Wars Rebels. And, and people feel forced to go back and watch that to understand the current thing of the Mandalorian, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more that there are throwbacks like that, it can create that feeling. And what you'd really want, both from a profit revenue standpoint and just for the good of the game, is that people truly feel like they can pick up anything off the shelf and play that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm 100% I'm on that goal. Right. It, it's going along those lines. You know, we talked last week about sometimes we might feel that people who are working on a, a property are lazy in the sense that they don't go back and, uh, and do their research on what's come before and make that canon work in a new uh, iteration in a new project. And sometimes the opposite can be true in the sense that someone gets to work on a new property and they are lazy in not creating something new they they can get lazy in relying on the same tropes on the same characters on the same themes and create a thing that is either not fun not interesting to new fans or just relies on nostalgia to carry its you know carry the weight of what should be a good story um and so that's you know that's one way where i like a break from canon in the sense that I want something new. I don't want that same story. And it's okay if you like the same story because it's reassuring, right? It's the security right. blanket of I'm going to go back. I'm not feeling great. I'm going to go back and watch this movie for the 73rd time. And, and, and that's, that is a totally sure. reasonable, acceptable uh, way to be, but it does, it can stifle new things. It can for sure. So the next session, fifth edition canon begins with its core rule books. This is where they stated that every, the canon includes every lore item in the three core books, which made me immediately think, wow, there's not that much lore in there. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the DMG in terms of, you know, what the multiverse looks like, but I mean, right. there's very little lore in the books. Um, beyond, and the a quote here from what Chris wrote, beyond these core rule books, we don't have a public facing account of what is canonical in fifth edition because we don't want to overload our fellow creators and business partners. So, yeah, as we said, it's, it's very interesting because that is not a whole lot to go on. So I think there has to be something else for individual projects to sort of drive that creation. Yeah. And, and we have to remember that when they talk about 
you know, when, when they talk about partners uh, and fellow creators, they're not just talking about role play game products, right? They're talking about candy right. and, and lunch meat yeah. and, and all of those things. And so it, it can be very, a very heavy lift to try to make lunch meat canonical. Uh, right. And, and so the, yeah, yeah, that's and, why it's important to, uh, to keep an eye on these things, but not to be weighed down by these things. And Wizards has spent a lot of effort on this. Like when uh, I was invited to playtest D&D Next many, many moons ago, um, which back then was a big secret thing, and then we were allowed to talk about it. You know, one of the things they did when they let us tour the Wizards offices was to look at on the side of, of offices, they had all of this art. Mm-hmm. And they had gone through and worked with a couple of companies to do, I mean, I would call it endless. It obviously wasn't, but it was just a, a, an unbelievable amount of art for every region of Faerun mm-hmm. and for all sorts of monsters. And, you know, they drew an owl bear five times in five different ways and then chose one, right? And they looked at what is the, the, the outfit that somebody typically wears in you name Faerun Nation, right? And over and over again, just plastering these walls. And it was such a clear attempt to canonize this. Mm-hmm. So that they could feed it off to partners and everything. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, this is an interesting shift, right? Uh, yeah. And you know, and it it it's helpful. It's very helpful to creators to yeah. to be able to to see these things. And it, it, you had mentioned in the past, despite my quote unquote anti-canon sentiments, uh, <laughs> that that it does bring community together, right? It it does it does set the zeitgeist for the for this iteration of the game and of the worlds that the game uses yeah i things like art for me are, are very uh, creatively stimulating when i when i'm looking at things because it's that reminder that just because you're in the country of x you know rashomon whatever mm-hmm. it's not like being in cormier and their dress their mannerisms their skin coloration you know all of that changes uh, as you move around the world, just as it does in our world. Mm-hmm. And, and so that reminder to change this up is, is good, but you only know that through having something that's reminding you of this and telling you, you know, these are different folks, yeah. they have different languages, yep. accents. Yeah. So Canon is less about your enjoyment of the game and more about us being internally consistent is the next section. Um, and the point is that something being canonical should not impact a DM's game. I didn't super follow this part of it. Um, they, there are some examples here, such as giants are stronger, or taller, trolls regenerate, and that this is more things they need to keep in mind so they're not reinventing the wheel and so they know what the world should be like. And I get that. But to me, all that kind of stuff is really helpful for me as a DM as well. Um, knowing which NPCs are in power in 10 towns, that's something I can easily change if I don't like what they tell me, but it helps me to tell a story as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. What did you? Yeah, I, I was a little like you confused on, on what exactly this meant. Um, I, I do understand the, I do understand what you're saying in terms of it should be stated, but you can always change it. The the yeah. problem that I've seen over and over and over again, both as just a you know a DM back in first edition days as a kid, as well as a creator for fifth edition, is that players also read things, and 
So you can say DMs can change anything that they that is put in the books until they run up against player expectations. And so that that's that's the that's the trap that Canon sets for people who want to be creators is if you want to step outside of Canon, you have to contend with players who may not share your vision of your vision of the 10 towns or your vision of (laughs) whatever. Um, So then the game's long history is known to us. This to me felt like the save. Uh, so if you're worried about everything we've said, don't worry, the staff take Canon seriously. And then this is an important point that they make, an important point they make, and I shouldn't take away from it. So they say for the staff, the staff must know the game's lore and history so they can know when they're doing one of two things, being faithful to it or changing it. And that's a great point, right? You, the, the people who are entrusted with the care of D and D they have to know it in and out. And that's good to, that they stated that respect and, and, and need. Yeah. Um, they have two guiding principles. If the artwork holds up or the lore has been true in every past of the edition of the game, think twice about changing it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. If the artwork or lore hasn't withstood the test of time, we can update or discard it. Um, and the examples include how many eyes the default beholder has had, which has always stayed the same and seems to work fine. So why change it? Mm-hmm. Though I'm sure Sean and I and many fans immediately said, wait, there's that one beholder and the other one. Sure, right. Default beholder. Yes, it's true. Right. <laughs> um, and then the name of a Waterdeep street, which was Slut Street, has changed in Dragon Heist for obvious reasons. And this led to a fun tweet yeah. by Ed Greenwood right. where he recalled or, or recanted the story of Slut Street uh, and how it comes from his upbringing with a British relative. I forget who it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that? I, I, saw, I didn't read the entire thing, but I read the first couple of posts. Yeah. And so the, the whole point is that this actually is a term that's used in British English for, I forget exactly what it means, but the idea is that this is a street where people do sort of hard work. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're laboring and they're uh, cleaning and doing things that actually does not mean prostitution in this particular use. And that's the history of, of kind of where that naming of that street came from. Right. And, but and that's true of of everything, right? That's true of language. It's true of of our I- ideas of of the common, you know, perceptions and and everything. So that's why things have to change and should change. Yeah, and and it makes sense because we, you know, if you look into the the lore of what Ed has created, you know, they were aware of these kinds of things and were doing things like you know renaming prostitution halls to fest halls mm-hmm. so that it could be more palatable and 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 something that gave you the flexibility to use in whichever reason. Now we would just take that out completely, mm-hmm. but back then it was. Um, you know, there was still an awareness of it back then. So I thought that was interesting that that this led to discussion online in that way. Yeah. And then we end with a thing that just made me, it still makes me scratch my head. I actually can't help but scratch my head. As I say, I'm scratching my head. <laughs> Take the 5E Canon Commando quiz. Mm-hmm. And this felt like somebody just slapping me around. Right. It's a five-question lore quiz, sort of. The first one is an attempt to do, I think, a gotcha on how many eyes a beholder has. I think just expecting players to forget about the central eye. Central eye, right. Yeah, And then it's like, you know, is Las Vegas a canonical domain of dread, which we all know it is. Um, it should be. 
and I guess I, don't, I, I felt like this was just like I'm trying to mock anyone who cares about canon. I, I was like, wow, if I were an editor, I would have just taken this quiz right out of there. I, I, I understand why, and I laughed at it. I laughed at it for exactly that reason, right? Because <laughs> because it it speaks to to people who take canon very seriously, and so they're like, I am going to prove that I am the master of all canon. I'm going to take this quiz and I'm going to get all five right. And I'm going to argue if I get one wrong. And I'm going to go back to my 1976 book and show where exactly I am right. And then, it, and then it's this sort of funny satirical quiz, uh, which is, you know, how some people do see canon, right? It's, I don't care what the yeah. canon is. I'm going to play my game and do things my way. And, and we're going to have a good time. So, it, it, yeah. it, I, I definitely, it, when I looked at the quiz, I was like, some people are going to be very, very upset by this. And, yeah. and, and I just sort of gave it a little snicker and, and moved on. So, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's definitely a thing. It was, uh, I, it's a thing. I don't, I don't know. Like it, to me, it was not a great PR move, but, right. but so it goes. Right. And, and just to end on that note, I thought was, you know, not what you would do on the, on the PR spectrum of things, but, uh, right. Yeah, so if anyone at the end hadn't gotten the message, well, there's that quiz to tell you how they feel. <laughs> yeah, it 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 was. I I hope I hope that the person doing it understood what they were doing, uh, because you know it's one thing to make a point; it's another thing to be blind to what you're doing. Uh, so yeah, rub people's nose in it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah. But uh, so there, there was our further discussion on canon. Not as much eye poking and hair pulling as last week. So uh, sorry about that. Uh, maybe well, I, you know, and I think people enjoyed it, so that's good. I, yeah. I think we hopefully did speak to it in ways that are my, my main thing, and I think your thing as well is more to be thought provoking around this because I don't know that there is an answer. Everything has reasons and counter reasons, mm -hmm. and it's more that I, you know, I think what you and I both want, right, is fans to think about this and realize there isn't just one clear answer on it. And right. And we'll, I'm sure change slowly over time on what D and D stance is. Yeah. And, and I want people who are just picking up D and D for the first time to enjoy the game as much as someone who's been playing since 1974 and not let lore become a barrier between those yeah. people. Amen. All right. And speaking of new players and, New news, Hasbro second uh, quarter earnings call went out. And boy, oh boy, do we see continued success? Yes, we do. Sales in Hasbro's newly created Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming segment more than doubled in quarter two of 2021 behind record sales on two Magic Gathering products. Sales in the segment were 400 and 6.3 million in quarter two of 2021, up over 118% uh, in quarter two of last year. So that uh, increase is uh, attributed to Strixhaven and Modern Horizons 2, two Magic the Gathering products that were released in that quarter, along with the growth in digital games and including a better than expected launch of Magic Arena on mobile. Um, D&D also grew, although they note the Dark Alliance game, the latest video game release, did not meet their expectations. 
So growth on the Wizards of the Coast side of Hasbro outpaced the rest of Hasbro. It is now up to 31% of Hasbro's total in quarter two. So, yeah, and again, I'm sure we've mentioned this before, but in years past, we would be lucky to to see it as a line item in, you know, some sort of arcane, you know, stock investor report. And now they are openly talking about its success and really hitching their wagon, Hasbro hitching their wagon to Wizards of the Coast as its main mover and driver. Yeah. I mean, Hasbro... And, and wizards together have expected sort of two things. One is that wizards will teach the rest of Hasbro how to be lean and profitable the way that wizards has been. And if you've ever worked at high corporate levels, man, on one hand, this is sort of what you wish will happen. And, but it's mm-hmm. also the, be careful what you wish for. Like you now have to do this, right? You've got to teach the rest of the company how to do it. And they're always the politics, the everything that, you know, our business isn't like yours. It's, it's a tall order. And then they're also expected to double their revenue. And it's always the kind of thing that goes great on an earnings call, but the reality of saying, Hey, just double everything. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I've I've been a manager who's been told to, you know, have unbelievable growth levels and it, okay, I guess I'll find a way to do that right. is, is hard. Yeah. And, and to, to back up what Teos is saying, this is not a Hasbro Wizards of the Coast thing. This is a corporate thing. As soon as you, as, capitalism as, yes, as soon as your, your department, as soon as your segment of the company becomes popular, becomes profitable, does better than expected it's even more as expected and so that's what's happening and it's great if it's sustainable but most of the time i would say not even some of the time most of the time the thing that made your company your segment your product you know marketable or popular or you know revenue growing had nothing to do with what you did it had to do with some outside factors that you can't control. So that now you're expected to increase something that you didn't have any control over in the first place. And that's where the management of the company becomes very, very important not to do things that a, not only, you know, don't cause this increase, but end up hurting in the long run. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, this could all be good news, right? Um, it could be that this just is the fire that everybody needs. And with proper resources and growth, it's everything that we want. You know, better D&D stuff, more D&D stuff, more expressions of it, more fans. That can all be great. Uh, but it also could mean that some springs pop out as pressure is applied. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, it's all looked good, right? When we look at things like the the recent products, Van Richten's, uh, that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so we'll see how everything continues to roll out and, and, and what it looks like. So yeah, <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah. It, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting in the sense that much of the success that we attributed to D and D since it's launched, since the launch of fifth edition was the slow release schedule, right? Yeah. Because everyone was buying every book. Yeah. And the deep focus on one clear story. Exactly. Right? One nice marketing message. Yep. And so now we, as we've noticed, it's, it's that sort of going by the wayside to this sort of more broad push, which if the audience is there for it, that's great. Then you're going to succeed. 
But if you're segmenting your own audience, like we yeah. saw during uh, TSR days, right? Then it, that's not going to be successful a successful right. strategy in the long run. So we'll see how that goes. Um, one thing that we did hear that also is interesting because this can affect the equation as well is both D&D and Magic the Gathering will see price increases. Um, this is intended to compensate for the ever-increasing shipping costs that we talked about last episode and probably several before that. Um, this will happen sometime before the end of the year, maybe Q4, maybe Q3. The change is under 10%, but it's not clear how much. Um, and we had just finished talking about how prices haven't changed since the launch of 5e. So uh, that's coming in some way. Expect to see that. Uh, I don't hugely foresee that that's a big problem. Yeah. But we'll see. Yep. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't make things happen unless, you know, unless Hasbro creates its own uh, shipping industry. Uh, you, you can only do what you can do. So what do you think about this next part, Sean? Uh, the new digital initiative. Yeah. This was, this was a hard one to understand exactly what was being said um, because these earning calls, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a phone uh, conversation and, and the, the banter can kind of go in various directions. Yeah. But there is what's, what was mentioned was a new digital role-playing initiative for D&D. Yeah. And there were some slides shared that seemed more like business speak type stuff. Um, they talked about video games a lot. So some of this felt like, okay, digital role-playing initiative equals video games. Um, Dark Alliance was a modest investment. It's not going to impact them substantially. They've got several other games in the, in the pipeline, but then they mentioned a planned investment in digital role-playing. A slide shows virtual tabletops for Roll20, Astral, Tabletop Simulator, Twitter, and TikTok as, or uh, Tabletop Simulator. Then it shows Twitter and TikTok as online communities. Uh, and then the Discord communities, which included D&D, &D, uh, Discord and Dungeons, which they note has 26,000 plus members, and Crit or Quit, new player friendly. Yeah. Um, that's interesting because, you know, we have not seen Wizards mention a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it, you know, I think as, as an earnings call, sometimes people just throw out terms, right? It's like, let's use the new marketing term to show that we may be aware of these things, even if we don't have a plan or we are not talking about our current right. plans around those. Uh, so as, as Teos notes in our show notes, they didn't mention D and D beyond or other partners or other platforms. Um, right. Although they did mention that digital revenue is up over 100%. Uh, and so it, it leaves to question, you know, is part of this digital role-playing initiative for D&D &D going to be something like D&D &D Beyond, but controlled by wizards? Is it going to be something like a virtual tabletop? Is it going to be something mm -hmm. like the DM's Guild, uh, but run directly through Wizards of the Coast? Because for, you know, for every sale that is done via their open gaming license, they're losing revenue that they could right. if they were hosting a, such a site on their own uh, on their own platform. So it's just a very interesting time to be paying attention to the D and D uh, business. 
Yeah. And, and that's like, we're talking about these corporate things. There's always someone who's going to say, Hey, why don't we do that? And it's really easy to have that kind of conversation in one room. And you hope that you also have the other conversation where someone says, well, actually, here's what we gain by partnering with D&D Beyond. Here's what we gain with right. OBS yep. partnership. And if we did it ourselves, here are the, the perils. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when we've done it ourselves, here are the huge barriers we faced. And, oh, this did not go well. And, right. you know, you can look at screenshots of things like the Monster Builder, where there were all these icons of other applications were going to go in these little placeholders mm -hmm. and never managed to be there after years of work by Wizards right. trying to control its own digital yeah. solution. So it's hard work. Yeah. Do you really want to try to take that yeah, on? Yeah, or, or create these extensive forums and then realize a few months in that forums aren't really helping your business. Uh, yeah. In fact, they may be hurting as, as, as it attracts detractors and trolls and, and people who are just bad mouthing your stuff rather than actually enhancing your brand. So the history of Gleemax yes, is a dark one. It is. It is. I still have the <laughs> Gleemax brain around here somewhere. It's, oh, that's great. I, I never got one of those. It's, that's, it's that's melting, perfect. but it's around here somewhere. <laughs> Well, so is my brain. No, that's true. That's true. I uh, I can sympathize. Uh, the next D&D virtual weekend has been scheduled for August 13th through 15th. Uh, so you can mark your calendar. The Yawning Portal, where you can sign up for the D&D virtual weekend games, is not yet open. But keep a watch on the D&D and Bald Man Games Twitter for an announcement for when it goes live. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning here that um, the fifth Magic the Gathering free adventure is out mm -hmm. uh, from Cyan Depths, and we're going to talk about the whole series in a later show. Yep, or at the end of this show, maybe. We're, we're going to decide. We'll see. Yeah. D&D uh, yeah. Beyond had done a contest uh, asking people to create a portrait frame design, and then they offered a prize to the top three spots. But after a lot of discussion, focusing on how the company uh, was setting up to retain ownership of not just the winners, but all of the submissions, the contest was pulled because it felt like people were doing work, but not getting compensated for it, which brings up that whole work for exposure uh, rather than yeah. for pay uh, debacle that's been happening in the industry and, and other yeah. industries for years. So. Uh, that contest has been pulled and Dean D beyond, I think did a pretty good job of coming out and saying, Hey, you know, we thought this was a good thing. We learned that it wasn't, and we learned why. And so, you know, we're going to pull the contest, not as punishment for anyone, but because we now understand, you know, what, what a contest mm -hmm. should mean and, and what it means to, to our fans and users. So, uh, you know, good on them. Yeah. And, and, this is the kind of thing where I'm reading on Twitter where D&D Beyond is saying, well, let us come back and, and explain. You know, we hear what people are saying. Let us explain better what we're trying to do here. And then I just kept catching up on my timeline. Oh, it's canceled. <laughs> like, wow, life comes at you fast. Yeah. And and they had to respond very, chose to respond very quickly, mm -hmm. which is hard to do well. Mm -hmm. And And those responses were very good. And the write-up that they did 
it, it almost felt like not only were they saying, hey, we heard you, but also they were taking the time to actually inform others on the issues that they were mm -hmm. understanding and comprehending, right. which was really very good. A lot of companies not only sound like ornery, like I didn't, you know, thanks for telling us this stuff that we didn't want to hear, but, but won't actually then adopt it and explain it to others. And they, they fully accounted for these topics that are being raised. So good on D&D Beyond. And I think it's an overall really good indication of where we're trying to go to as an industry that this can happen. I mean, I think just even a couple of years ago, I don't think this would have gotten much notice, mm -hmm. uh, certainly to a level where somebody would have canceled a, a contest. Right. Yeah. I mean, social media is for all its faults and, and all its benefits. It does a good job of getting the word out uh, for better or worse about things. And so uh, you can, but also I think that, yeah. And, and, and maybe, and maybe you're saying the same thing, but through, it's not just the, the reaction of like, we don't like this, but, but also that the mindset of at least the people on Twitter uh, and forums has been more towards, Hey, people need to get paid. Right. And, and you shouldn't be uh, compensation should never be from some line on a contest page or anything like that. Mm -hmm which actually made me think of the DM's challenge. And I'm not trying to burn the DM's challenge that D&D is currently running, but it has been interesting to me as it's played out. I, th I, you know, I didn't know what it would feel like, um, but we're now two weeks into the challenge and each week has had a sort of contest question that they had to do. And there hasn't actually been that much fanfare about it, which I think if, that if I were one of the top 10 finalists, I might be a little down about that, that I might have expected a little more notoriety coming from each week, mm -hmm. the way that, say, Paizo's RPG Superstar program would have a blog post for every single week and would show snippets of people's design. Mm -hmm. Paizo's RPG Superstar also had things like Jason Bullman, who's a, you know, the, one of the main people there, mm -hmm. reading entries and commenting on the entries right. or other top designers. Yeah. And I think that when I thought about this DMs challenge and had I entered, I would have been thinking that one of the reasons I might have done this challenge was so that Jeremy Crawford or Chris Perkins would read my words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that a lot of people may have felt that way. And now what we're seeing is that actually it's um, contractors who are more like influencers. That doesn't mean they don't have D&D experience. A lot of them do. Right. But they're, they're not staff right. with years of D&D experience that are evaluating your thing. And so I worry that contestants may, for that, may have been a little bit like expecting one thing and getting another thing. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 know. I, I noted it, but I didn't think overly much about it. I mean, if I, I, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound flippant, but it's not meant to be flippant at all. Uh, you know, if the, these designers are turning in their work and not getting any recognition or public fanfare for it, welcome to the world of freelance design. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's, it's true. Yeah. It's true. You, you, you do yeah. what you're asked, you turn it in, someone looks at it, they either send it back to you or they publish it or they make a few changes and then you move on to the next thing. And, yeah. and, and nobody may see it and nobody right. may talk about it. And, and your name may, in the olden days, your name might not even be on it. Right. I mean, that's often what happened is, that, or you may be miscredited. Or you may be miscredited. That that's never happened to me except for that one time. <sighs> but you know, it's, it's just contests are used in different ways. And a lot of times they're just marketing ploys uh, to 
to, you know, get people excited about something, whether you're, whether you're a contestant and hope that your work gets noticed or you're just a fan and like American Idol, the voice style, want to like choose your favorite and root for your person. Right. Uh, you know, that's, that's one way that contests are used. Another way is to actually find a new generation or a, a, a hidden gem among designers to, to become a, you know, become a, a worker for you. And yeah. so it's important, I think, as a contest designer to know what the, what the, the goal is of the contest and work in a way that moves toward that goal. So without knowing what their yeah. goal is, uh, it's, it's hard to comment on it, you know, other than to say, if you're in it, good luck. You know, I hope, I hope yeah. people make some good stuff and, and it gets enjoyed by folks. Yeah. And, and I think the main benefit of doing these contests, these types of specific contests where you're designing like a different thing every week, you know, a magic item, a monster or whatever that teaches you to, to be really good. It's like, it's like taking a course. And maybe you feel like you're teaching yourself, but it's, it's being forced to do that. That forces you to look at the underlying design principles, mm -hmm. do the best job you can. You, you just sign up for boot camp as, as a contest. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that can be a great benefit. And so hopefully that's good enough. And I agree with you that, you know, the reality of freelance design is you cannot do it thinking that what you'll get is fame. I mean, you may try that, but it's, it's going to not be, <laughs> it's going to be disappointing. Yeah. I think. Yep. When your when your daughter says, but do you know Alan Patrick? Right, exactly, exactly. That's uh, that's you know you've made it then when you're compared. Right you, Dad. Co compared compared favorably guy? to Alan Patrick. That's uh, what we all hope. Yep. For. Uh, Arcadia number six is out. Uh, we have authors Mike Shea writing the Grim Accord, which are four evil NPC adventurers that you can add as rivals. Uh, do you want to mention anything about that? It was, this is really nice piece of work. Um, the NPC kind of articles like this, we've seen a number of them over the years. This is really nicely done. They each come with super interesting flavor. That's also useful. Uh, and then a whole section at the end, not just do you get their stats and their bonds and flaws and the compelling story, but then at the end, a bunch of quests on how to integrate them into your campaign. And on top of that rules for kingdoms and warfare to use them as an NPC realm that uh, can be part of the whole kingdoms and warfare mechanic. Really excellent marriage of storage and function. Nice. Uh, next, we have The Armor of Zebulon by Gabe Hicks. It involves four pieces of a suit of magical armor that will provide benefits individually and more when all the items are worn. But if you put all four into the suit, you bring together the power of the demigod Zevalon. And it offers to inhabit your body if you die. Uh, if you don't accept, you may end up dead anyway uh, or yep. or being possessed Controlled. when you die. Yep. And then uh, just one item grants the flaw to seek out the other pieces. Uh, so it's a clever idea sort of along the lines of a, you know, Eye of Vecna, uh, Hand of Vecna thing yeah. or the Rod of Seven yeah. Parts. Uh, they're very powerful, so you probably only want to use them in at higher tiers. And then a short adventure uh, introduces the armor, usable uh, for level six PCs. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's really a couple of the items that I felt were, were really strong. But um, 
but some DMs love that kind of thing too. So it can it can work at any level. It's not like it has to be, but but they can be a little bit powerful. So you want to look at how that influences. And they have some nice um, advice there for the DM on how to work with your player. So this is a fun experience rather than wait, what my character got controlled. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the final installment in Arcadia Issue 6 is Spelunking by H.H. Carlin, an adventure for level 4 PCs uh, who enter a cave looking for missing teens but run into an ancient crystal monster. Nice exploration scenes in this one, uh, a cavern section, pits, and various ways to cross it, and a hidden challenge and reward. So what do you think about this? Yeah, it's pretty neat. I I liked how these... uh... The, the, the different encounter scenes are pretty evocative with these various angles to them and kind of create that open play where you're rewarded for thinking about, do you want to jump across? Do you want to use ropes? And and then, of course, there's more that will happen and how that plays out will depend on what you chose to do. And I, I liked a lot about that. Um, you know, overall, I thought this issue, I, I was expecting this might be a kind of soft issue because the 320-page Kingdoms and Warfare hardback book had just come out. So maybe, you know, somebody in the offices at MCDM is a little tired. But no, this is really strong, really good. James is having caffeine or whatever his uh, his caffeine substitute is. Right. Yeah, right. that's a lot of work. So good job uh, on Arcadia Issue 6. PAX has updated its COVID policy. So PAXs will be implementing either a vaccine or a negative COVID test requirement for all attendees. So if you were hesitating to go back to PAX because you weren't sure that they were going to be protecting their participants uh, in, in a way that you agreed with, well, now everyone there will either be vaccinated or provide a negative COVID test. This is great. I recently went to a track competition where they did something like this. In fact, what they did was you you showed your your vaccination card if you had one. Um, And then if you had a vaccination card, they still gave you a COVID test, rapid test Mm -hmm. in two minutes, you were were done. Uh, And if you were vaccinated and passed the test, you got an armband letting go in for every single day and you were done with that. If you were not vaccinated, then every day you had to get a different colored armband to prove that you were mm-hmm. negative every single day. Mm-hmm. And so it added, you know, 12 minutes or something to your thing. But then it meant that, you know, everybody in that arena has gone through this process. I thought it was pretty good. So I think for conventions, especially with the way the numbers have been on COVID, mm-hmm. this is a great approach. And I'm glad to see PAX update to that for PAX West and yep. beyond. So we'll keep an eye on the different conventions that are starting to come online but not online <laughs> uh right. in person conventions we'll keep an eye on uh, how all that's going uh, whiz kids has introduced a beginner paint line this would be right up my alley if i could hold a brush without shaking um prismatic paint is a set of paints designed to introduce new painters they carry the D lo- logo and are created in partnership with vallejo a well-known miniature paint company uh, there will be 60 different colors. A starter case provides 30 basic colors, and a second bundle adds another 30. Uh, they will also offer sprue-based unpainted models called frameworks to accompany the paints. These frameworks are supposed to be game agnostic, but the images also seem to have the D&D logo on an orc multipack. All right. That's how you want your orcs in a multipack. I 
Yeah, and so that's, you know, sprue-based is that kind of like if you did old models or whatever, right? It's where there's the whole, it's all printed out in one sort of sheet, and you kind of pry the mini and twist it back and forth off of the sprue. Right. And and then often pieces will kind of come together. You might, you know, snap them into place or glue them in place and then put them in the base and then paint the whole thing uh, versus being an, an individual mini that's coming there. <laughs> it's cheaper to produce a sprue. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of this makes it a lower entry point item. Um, so yeah, we'll see that. The other thing I saw, Sean, is that WizKids is adding four color neoprene style battle mats, $60 each, ocean, tundra, forest, grasslands. The ocean is really like, you know, you'd put a ship on it and you're in the middle of the water. Yeah. And then the others are colorful, evocative scenes of this tundra, forest, grasslands. Kind of neat. There was a, a video that also showcased them on, on Twitch and YouTube. Hmm. Um, so that's a nice offering. Yeah, I, did, a nice I didn't see mat. that. So what are the neoprene style battle mats? So the neoprene is sort of material, so it's a little more plasticky than vinyl. Okay. Uh, but it's still something that you roll up into a tube okay. so you can throw it in your backpack. You know, it's flex, fairly flexible. Gotcha. And then you'd unroll it at your gaming table and it has a grid on it. Mm -hmm. And you can play, you know, an adventure on it. Yeah. So the idea is that if you were to go in and say get all four or a couple of these, you'd be able to handle different mm -hmm. biomes, right? By just plunking that down and be like, oh, you know, we're in these grasslands and here's the encounter. And you can still draw on them with marker? I don't know if they're wet erase or dry erase or something like that. Okay. That I'm not sure. Okay. I didn't see that. I usually I thought you knew everything. <laughs> I don't know. I did watch the video and look at them and they look pretty, but that's all I know. And last but not least, I was interviewed on Dice Geeks for their 100th episode. Uh, I sat down and chatted about the Acquisitions Incorporated source book that Teos and I worked on, uh, working on the Star Trek Adventures game, and a whole bunch of other design topics. So uh, there's a link in the show notes for that, or you can go to DiceGeeks.com to give it a listen. And we... That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's been a while since we recorded, so I cannot remember exactly what i said but i'm sure it was insightful and probably only slightly off color uh <laughs> <laughs> sure it was great and i you know playing the dune rpg on this stream that i've been doing um i now want to play star trek adventures because i like that system of the 2d20 mm -hmm. and how it all works it's it's cool for storytelling yep we are here with a very special guest we are here with mr james hake so James, could you, I know you've been on the show before, uh, but could you reintroduce yourself to anyone who may not have heard a previous episode? <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, I'm James Hake. Uh, it's great to be on the show, Sean and Teos. Um, now, when I speak to you, I am uh, speaking to you as the uh, head of Fables at Ghostfire Gaming. We're co-workers now, Sean. Yes. Uh, and... The uh, what what Ghostfire is calling fables, what I'm working on is still uh, heavily under wraps. But what is not under wraps these days is uh, a variety of freelance projects that have kind of been in radio silence for the past little while. Uh, one of my first ever D and D projects uh, on a on a sort of large scale was working with Critical Role and Matthew Mercer on the. Caldore campaign setting, which was published by Green Ronin a handful of years ago. And since then, I've gone gone ahead and done a couple of other D&D projects with Wizards of the Coast and Cobalt Press and you know, cool folks like that. Mm -hmm. 
you say that very casually. I mean, these yeah. are super dope, amazing projects that you've done, <laughs> uh, like Dragon Heist. I mean, you know. Thank yeah. you. I, I, Dragon Heist is a very special place in my heart. I'm moving right now. And one of the final things I'm going to take out of this house is the is a big poster-sized version of the Tyler Jacobson cover for Dragon Heist. It sits oh, above wow. my desk and basically is like, if I ever feel creatively exhausted, I look up and I'm like, ah, I remember those times. Yes. <laughs> those heady days of, of yore of like two years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Mental cobwebs. Mm. So wow. with recent news, we have learned that uh, the Tal Durai setting has been reborn. Reborn indeed. So could you talk just a, for a minute about what that means? Absolutely. The Taldori Reborn, or the Taldori Campaign Setting Reborn, as it's fully called, is a project that started as an idea for a simple reprint of the Taldori Campaign Setting. Uh, Critical Role and their publishing arm, Darrington Press, regained the publication rights for the Taldori Setting from uh, Green Ronin Publishing. And what... uh, Ivan Van Norman over at Darrington Press uh, got in touch with me to do was basically do a simple timeline update. So I mean, we can get into the the specifics of Critical Role uh, later on, but Critical Role's first campaign with Vox Machina coincides with uh, the Taldori campaign setting, the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what we wanted to do is since the Mighty Nine campaign, Critical Role's second campaign in Wildmount, takes place about 20 years later. We wanted to update the timeline of the Taldori campaign setting to match with, uh, to match with that mm-hmm. campaign, uh, and also match with the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount book that Wizards of the Coast published. Um, and the project got a lot bigger than a simple timeline update, ultimately. (laughs) Uh, We doubled the amount of pages in the book, uh, expanding it. Wow. And a lot of that's uh, going back and revising and rethinking and reimagining lore. A lot of it is providing a a ton of new subclasses. The original book had four, I believe, and we've gone ahead and added, uh, there's a grand total of, eight or nine in there right off the top of my head. And it's a whole bunch of more magic items and the vestiges have gotten a a second look. There's a whole bunch of new monsters and even the old monsters have gotten a second look. It's, it's been a incredible and rare opportunity for me to go back and look at old words that I've written and (laughs) <laughs> and sort of reevaluate them with five years extra experience under my belt. That's got to be really interesting because I've, I've got the book here yeah. you know, by my side, the, the, the original one, which is, I mean, it's a great book. It's got this awesome cover. It has this, some person named Matthew Mercer that I guess sort of helped you with when you wrote it, whatever that might be, uh, you know, by Matthew Mercer and James. Like that alone has to be just, was it, and I'm trying to think back, was it as cool then as it is now to have yes. your name right next to 
Yeah, it's always been that. No cool, question. Right? Cool. <laughs> when I was uh, working with Geek and Sundry, Matt Matt is even now uh, very protective of of his child of of this world of his, and he really wanted to make sure that uh, it was properly represented by people who understood it. And the the, the only reason why I was on that book uh, originally is that I was a guy on the Geek and Sundry staff. I was an intern who Matt knew loved D&D and was closely following Critical Role. Uh, and there were a handful of other people who worked on that on the original Taldori campaign setting. I know that Matt Colville has a couple of uh, lines of text in there. Uh, Critical Role's old producer, uh, Ryan, Ryan Green, has a couple of lines of text in there. All, the, all members of the cast have a couple of lines of text in there. Um, and it's just over the years of working with Matt, he's come to know me, not just as, you know, the, the geek and sundry intern guy who knows his D&D, I guess, but as someone who, you know, has has been in the world of Exandria a number of times and has... Uh, worked really hard to match Matt's writing style and sort of way of thinking about this world. And, and uh, he, he's, he's come to trust me as a good steward of, of the world. And it's, it's really, it it means a lot to me. It means a lot to me that he, that he has that sort of faith in me. Yeah. It's Um, always, it's always interesting. You know, the first time you get a project with a company or with another creator, you know, you do your work and sometimes that's the end of it. And you always wonder, well, did I do a good job? Did they like <sighs> what I did? And you may never hear uh, you know, other than maybe a couple of platitudes, but you know, if they come back to you again <laughs> and trust you to work on this project or their property or their brand or their IP again, that they did trust you. Yeah. Uh, and they liked the work that you did because they come back again for it. So yeah, you know, kudos on that. <laughs> yeah, and especially with what you're talking about, which is when it's really it's someone's campaign and and to bring someone in and trust them like that, it is very difficult and it, and it takes a certain person to pull that off. So, yeah, great job on that. That's amazing. Thank you. All right. It's, so, well, it's this Taldori campaign setting is kind of a, a an interesting landmark for me with regards to that sort of working in Matt's world, which is when, when he and I worked on the original, we were incredibly collaborative for it. We were working on the same Google documents often Mm -hmm. simultaneously. Uh, And when we weren't working simultaneously, we were going back and looking at each other's words and editing them. And then we go and write our thing. And then Matt would come, come back and you'd edit my words. And it would be very sort of like, we were both hands in the clay at the same time. And it was similar when Matt, Chris Lockheed, James Intercasso, and I were doing uh, Explorer's Guide to Wild Matt. But this book was entirely different from that. Matt is unbelievably busy right now. He is doing so much. I mean, uh, Critical Role sort of interim campaign, Exandria Unlimited, came, uh, we learned of it kind of in the midst of the bookmaking process. So we had the chance to talk to that mini campaigns DM Aubria uh, to kind of get get a bit of her lore early, but it it speaks to how busy Matt is that he for for some of the time when we were working on this book he wasn't even free enough to DM Critical Role. Right. 
Right. Right. So you can imagine how much time he had for working on this book. So uh, he, he really entrusted me and Hannah, uh, Hannah Rose, who is my, uh, my co-lead on this project to, uh, to get it done and to, and to, you know, respect the setting and to not just continue his vision out, but, but bring our own imaginings into this book because he trusts that what, what, what I have in my head uh, is similar enough to what he has in his, that he only needs to come back at the very end and double check that it's all consistent. And that's, I mean, that feels really, really special. Yeah. Not only did you get the rare chance to work on such a popular you know, brand, such a popular world, but you got a rare chance to go back and look again at work that you'd done. You mentioned that, you know, yeah. what have you learned in these five years? <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a unbelievable amount of stuff. Um, and some of that is, you know, basic sort of prose fluency, uh, which is, uh, it, it's the easiest thing to say, but probably the hardest thing to actually do. What sounds good when you write it on the page? Uh, mm-hmm. There's no right answer to that. And it's just my, my voice as a writer has developed a little more. The original Teldori campaign setting, I was mimicking Matt Mercer a lot, mm-hmm. uh, which, which was useful because we were writing in tandem. Um, these days, I find that my, my voice has diverged from Matt's more uh, than it was in the original book, but I, uh, so it, it was a fun juggling act to write what sounded good to my ear, but also what sounded sort of natural, uh, for, for Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, but really neat, the big thing is that my, what's that? If I can just touch on that, that that's yeah. a neat balance of to what extent do we as freelancers want to write as the person that's most identified with the work? Mm-hmm. Uh, or what we think maybe the project calls for, the subject calls for, or our own voice. And those can be three very different things that we juggle. Yeah. yeah. It's such an interesting thing. Matt has such a distinctive writing voice. And the remarkable thing about that writing voice to me is that it's basically identical to his speaking voice. Uh, his his sort of phrasing and word choice and cadence to his writing is is it's like he's dictating, and that is that is beautiful and fluid and uh, occasionally grammatically incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I I love reading Matt's writing because you can you know it's him instantly. Mm-hmm. He has these very like very idiosyncratic turns of phrases that that I adore. Um, yeah. And so it, it becomes uh, it becomes a question often when I'm working within his words. Do I uh, do something that's more in the sort of formalistic Wizards of the Coast-ish D&D sort of textbookiness? Mm-hmm. Or do I, or, or is this an appropriate time for that very, uh, that, that, that very fantastical Matt voice to yeah. really sing above the rest? Um, because it can't be all the time. Uh, but if if it's if it's flattened out entirely, then you lose the magic also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so That's I uh, it's that was definitely a, a, a prose writing challenge coming back to this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the big thing is that my knowledge of D and D has improved uh, an immense amount. Um, the the mechanics of this game are very dense. 
mm-hmm. even in fifth edition, which is so streamlined compared to uh, past D&Ds, that if you want to write a book that is as uh, consistent with the core rules as anything Wizards of the Coast publishes, then it requires writers and uh, an editor uh, to be completely fluent in the mechanical language of D&D. And if you look at that old Tal'Dorei campaign setting, neither Matt nor I were very fluent in that language. We, we knew it, and we knew what we wanted to say, but very frequently uh, we did not actually say it. We said things that were mechanically like adjacent to <laughs> what we actually wanted to do. Yeah, sure. And, and that's seen in a lot of products like that. But Yeah, and you said something on Twitter the other day about, um, mm. I think you started with saying sort of how late you'd stayed up, but also that the... <laughs> um, that, that sort of the voyage as a writer never ends. I forget the exact words you, you used, but you were speaking to this idea that you, you sort of, we think as writers that when we're going to get better, then it'll all be easy. But what happens is sort of another door opens, right? And there's more behind it. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? The iceberg goes very, very deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of very specific, highly specialized knowledge that it takes to write D&D. And I don't say that to sound highfalutin. I say that to mean that every time you improve, and I, and I think any artist can, can relate to this, as you master your fundamentals, you will think, all right, I know what I'm doing. Now I won't have to agonize over these sort of fundamentals for uh, hours. Now I can just write. <laughs> and And knowing everything, the writing will be easy. Except that's not true, because when you learn your fundamentals, then uh, if if you are a diligent writer, I think, uh, and you're especially in D and D where you have to be committed to a certain level of of mechanical consistency, you find that the fundamentals are not enough. There are a, a million smaller fractious rules, uh, and and not just like game rules, but sort of like writing guidelines and style yeah. rules and sort of. F- little phraseologies and stock phrases that show up throughout the game that uh, if you do not use them properly, you will not sound like you're writing D&D. You, you may sound a D&D adjacent. You, you may sound like you're, you know, you may sound like you're a third-party publisher. And that's not to disparage third-party publishers in any way. But there, if, if you look at a Wizards of the Coast book and you look at a, a third-party book, there there will be these kind of mismatches between their ways of saying things uh here's here's an example um that 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 matt likes to use is that he he likes to write that you suffer damage um which is not a thing in the you know the mechanical framework of D. you know what it means obviously right. you know what it means right. but you never do anything in D, but take damage you you either deal damage or you take it and no other wording is used uh basically ever <laughs> Um, and so it's just like those, those little things, uh, start to pop out at you naturally yeah. as you get more familiar with the way these books are written, the way they're put together. And you'll, you'll look at them and you're like, why is that wrong? I know that's wrong. Why is that wrong? How do I make it right? How do I write that correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
I, I, I made that tweet at 3 a.m. and then subsequently stayed up two hours more because I was going through, <laughs> I was going through a manuscript uh, that that had come from a freelancer. It had been through editing. Uh, and I was looking through and there were a whole lot of these little tiny things that I, as the lead designer on a project had to be like, well, if I don't catch these, no one else will. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's, I, I don't mean to sound dramatic, but, I mean, but that's, no. that's the burden that comes to me as the lead designer yeah. on a project is that like the, the buck has to stop with me. And if, and, and, and it, it comes down to my standards, if my standards weren't so high about sort of, <laughs> that that sort of text accuracy this wouldn't be a problem right uh but my standards are very much we must use the proper wording uh in all cases otherwise there will be chaos there will be anarchy yeah Yeah. it's true and then you get to the point where you may want to try something different Mm. and you have to get beyond this mechanical um, yes you're you have to still be mechanically sound while stepping outside of what is norm the norm for the game you, but know, you have to do it with intention exactly yes. exactly and then you have to explain that intention or or at least show the intention repeatedly uh to the point where it becomes clear that this wasn't a mistake i didn't leave this out or i didn't change this uh, by accident i am purposefully doing it and this is why yes and that's you know that's the next step of the creative process whether you're talking about art or you're talking about writing or game <laughs> design mm-hmm. and and making it you know putting all those people who are going to say, Ooh, look, yeah. he said suffer instead of take. Uh, and and like, no suffer is a paradigm for when you take damage. That's based on, you know, the magical pain or something like that. It's like, no, we're establishing a paradigm here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's a little bit like when you're playing 5e, especially like I run 5e at conventions a fair bit and, and, you know, someone will cast a, you know, a cantrip uh, or they'll cast a, a spell and then they'll want to cast a spell as a bonus action, but mm. neither is a cantrip. Right. And when you point this out to somebody for the first time, they're like, what? And they'll often yeah. say, I've been playing for years. Yeah. Or you say like, okay, you guys take a long rest. So you'll get half your hit dice back and they go, what? Huh? Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. we just reset? And, and I've never known that. And it's, it's, it's like this awakening. And the same thing happens to me when I turn in a manu- manuscript to somebody like Scott Fitzgerald gray and, and he'll say, so this thing, we don't do that. And it's like, oh, you're right. <laughs> and then it goes on a list that I keep of things I really need to remember. Mm-hmm. Well, the next thing I turn into Scott Fitzgerald Gray or anyone. Yeah. Scott's a master. Scott worked yeah. with us uh, on, on Tal'Dora, actually. Uh, and that, that is part of why, uh, why I became so, uh, so laser-focused on things like that, because Scott is so laser-focused. Yeah. Um, and basically, I treat every project now as if uh, I've got a little Scott in my head. Or it's like, <laughs> uh, if I were to turn this manuscript into Scott, what would he say to me? Right. <laughs> I do that, too. I do that, too. It's, Scott's it's a master. True. Like, if, if you're not, uh, if you're listening to this, and you're not familiar with Scott, you, you know, you'll see him on everything from the fifth edition Monster Manual through all of fifth edition and uh, plenty of stuff before it, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just Boy, one of the sharpest sure, yeah. freelance editors out there. Yep. So... I want to go a little bit back to what this all is. Mm. Um, so it, it's the campaign setting for the world that was first featured in the first game mm. by the cast of Critical Role. And now think, it's featured in uh, the Exandria Unlimited miniseries as right, well. Right. Um, and we don't know what's coming. I don't think there's been any news as to what's coming next, right, of where oh, the things are yeah, set. We, we have no idea. 
So uh, go ahead and tell us now. If, if you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll have to be coy. I, I do know what's next, um, but I can't say it. <laughs> That's got to be great. Uh, um, it's, yeah, so it's, tell us, it's fun. <laughs> tell us a little bit about this world and what makes it awesome, why it's drawn in so many fans, other than just obviously the cast and the show and all of that. But what is it about this world that makes it special? Exandria is an awesome D&D world. Uh, for Tal'Dorei in particular, which is the continent uh, that all of Critical Role began on, it was created by Matt for a one-shot in the fourth edition era that uh, he played for fellow voice actor and Critical Role cast member Liam O'Brien. And basically the entire Critical Role cast was assembled there. Um and for several years, they played home games until Felicia Day over at Geek and Sundry was like, you should stream this. And they were like, I don't know if that'll work. Um, and then it worked. <laughs> just a bit. Yeah, just a bit. Uh, and then, you know, we went on for a hundred plus episodes set in Taldore in the first campaign uh, and a, a smattering of uh, little side Taldore appearances in other, uh, in other situations. Um Taldore was made for ease of access in its original form. Uh, it was for, it was a birthday party for someone who had never played D&D before with a whole host of people who had never played D&D before other than Matt and Taliesin, I believe. Um, and so everything needed to be very immediately intelligible for these people who are just playing a one-shot. Uh, it went on to become more, and so it grew in depth and scope. But it started as a very pastiche uh, in d e sort of place, um, which I think is... The people have criticized Beltone and Taldori, and I, and, I, and I see what they mean. Um, but it's intelligibility, it's accessibility, it's sort of its basicness to be a bit flip is um is is a very big strength of Taldori. like it, it uses a very recognizable cast of gods uh matt has said before that you know he used the dawn war deities from the dungeon master's guide to be the baseline of his gods and because of the way all of this works with Wizards of the Coast. Uh, these gods have new names and they've been reimagined. But when it was just a D&D game, uh, these gods were all very visible. We'll, we'll use the standard D&D gods and we'll do what we, we want with them. Um, and from that baseline level of simplicity, I think the great strength of Tal'Dorei is how the, the standard tropes of D&D fantasy have been built upon. This contrasts very strongly with, say, Wildmount and Isilra and Marquette and the other continents of Exandria, where I would say D&D tropes have been kind of broken down and reconstructed into something new. Uh, but Tal'Dorei takes the D&D tropes at face value and says, all right, but what if we, what happens when we extend this? What happens when we don't break it down entirely, but we take a new spin on it? Um, and that, in my, in, in my mind, makes it a great first campaign setting. It makes it a great place to start. Mm -hmm. 
just like if you were one of the first players of Critical Role, they got their start there. Uh, it's a great place for you to start. It's got really cool. mm-hmm. ancient dragons. Uh, it's got hidden cults. It's got uh, dwarves who live underground. You know, it, it's, it's got all of the, the sort of classic things you would expect. And then in, in the new Teldori campaign setting, there are a couple of things that we do to, uh, I would say, modernize these tropes, many of which uh, I, I, I wouldn't say are, are outdated per se, but are, are a little bit um, rough around the edges. Uh, the, the main one that I would say we took uh, a very, very close look at was the way that races function in Tal'Dorei. In the original conception of Tal'Dorei, all of the races of the land had a very World of Warcrafty approach to them. Uh, insofar as I would say they had sort of these racial enclaves where they lived. All the elves lived in Syngorn, all the dwarves lived in Craghammer, all the all the humans lived in Iman and Westron and Kaimal and the cities across, and there were goblins and orcs and hobgoblins in the wilds, and they were bad. Um, <laughs> and there, Tal'Dorei kind of started to uh, push on this. There were some, there were some like, uh, you know, some dwarves immigrated to Iman. And so Iman was a bit of a cosmopolitan melting pot and all of that. And there were a variety of different races and a variety of different places, but it was, it was still very much like, but they all came from here and then they left and they went somewhere else. Um, and, and we really wanted to I- examine that because like in, real life human history. We know that human beings sort of kind of, they originated in the very broad sort of cradle of life in Africa. And then they spread out broadly and, and, and changed depending on where they lived in the world. And, and we wanted to, uh, we wanted to make it so that if you saw a dwarf in Tal'Dorei, you would be, it would be very clear to you that the first question you would ask is not so how's it back home in Craghammer? Um, because that you know that that dwarf has lived for two hundred years uh, for for one thing, but they they might not have set foot in Craghammer. Their parents might have uh, lived in the the swamp burg of Stilben for the past two hundred fifty years, because that's where they set up their 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 quarry. They're, you know maybe their parents are responsible for all the stone that comes out of uh, the rocky hills nearby the Catal Swamp, um, and that that dwarf has never set foot in Craghammer. They've wandered all over the Dividing Plains. They've never gone back to the so-called ancestral homeland. Um, and this is doubly true because Exandria is a whole world. There are continents and there's there's flying ships. There's sea ships, there's sky ships, there's teleportation magic. This is a highly interconnected world with a lot of very fast uh, travel. Some basically as fast as modern airplanes uh, and when it comes to teleportation circles and sort of transport nexus in Amman, uh, instantaneous, much faster than, mm-hmm. than modern day transportation. Um, and so for dark elves in particular, Tal'Dorei's dark elves are very sort of classic, nasty, spider queen worshipping uh, weirdos who live underground. But over in Wildmount, dark elves are very different. Uh and it's not because of anything inherent to the race of, of 
dark elves. It's because they um, they escaped the influence of an evil god. They left the Underdark. Uh, these Jorhasian dark elves, the members of the Kreen dynasty, uh, they found a new way of living. Uh, their society escaped. And one of the many plot threads that we drop in uh, the Tal'Dorei campaign setting Reborn is what happens when the uh, when the majority elf city of Syngorn is visited by emissaries, dark elf emissaries from the Kreen dynasty saying our, our kin are uh, tortured and enslaved to the whims of an evil god, uh, and we need your help to do something about it. Um, it's 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 potentially a very meaty question, and it can't be done if you have this sort of we all come all all the dark elves come from here sort of sort of classic D and D nonsense uh, right, right. that is so common uh, in in a lot of in a lot of fantasy. We wanted to take a really close look at that. So, would you say that? the uh the Taldorai campaign setting reborn would be a good place for newer dms or newer players to set the campaign uh does it does it help them along in terms of getting a feel for you know a typical rpg dnd game a hundred percent um i yeah i i say with you know with, with a little bit of bias but but truly truly from the from the heart uh, Tal'Dorei is the single best place for a new DM to start playing D&D in. It's the best campaign setting. It's, it's lore is rich, but it's not decades long. It has not, it's not full of funky contradictions. Like, speaking of contradictions, I will say this about Tal'Dorei. There are things that we decided to alter about, uh, the lore. My, minor things, I, I think for the most part. Uh, typically when it comes to, uh, certain factions or certain races like uh, we weren't happy with the way that orcs were handled for instance in the original Taldori campaign saying uh, goblins too mm-hmm. and we decided all right this this is a timeline update but it is also uh this book is superseding the old one mm-hmm. um and so this is not a new edition this is just this is what is true about the book now so uh you 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 can safely ignore what was said about orcs being you know completely bloodthirsty monsters in the original mm-hmm. book and take what is here in reborn as, as canon. Um, but yes, w- when it comes to, uh, <laughs> uh, you had a conversation about this earlier, didn't you? Oh, <laughs> yes, we did. I was waiting for, I was waiting for the canon word to, to drop so I could mock Deus. Have we talked about canon? I, I, I don't can't remember. recall. Let me you had a chat about that. Lore that's, notes on... uh, that's not my arena. <laughs> it's canonical that we talk about canon. Yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, new DMs, I say Taldore is a, perfect place uh it's it's in fact i'd say the ideal place for you to start your campaign um a a fairly clean and uh definitive canon is a good reason for that it's also good because um like i was saying earlier these tropes that uh exist are present enough for your mind which is no doubt already familiar with a lot of fantasy stories to kind of naturally intuit what it's going to be like and then gives you the tools to to spin off of it and have a more and and have a less traditional canon uh if you if you want to Mm -hmm. 
Neat. What are what are some of the things that have happened in the twenty years that this book advances? Oh, this is very interesting. Um, this this is where this project started, and so it's where where my heart lies. The original Taldora campaign setting <clears throat> took place about a year after a massive dragon attack on the major national power in Tal'Dorei occurred. Um, Tal'Dorei's monarch, sovereign Uriel uh, II, was uh, moments before he was slain by an ancient green dragon, divested himself of absolute power and turned his uh, kingdom into a republic that was that was ruled by uh, a council, the Taldore Council, uh, which people have uh, memed quite a bit because the uh, exact membership of the Taldore Council has been quite nebulous up until a couple of months ago when Matt revealed it. He scooped us. I was hoping to reveal that in this book, but he, he scooped <laughs> us. <laughs> um, and and so the past uh, one one sort of lingering question that uh, Matt and I left up to players in the original campaigns and campaign setting is, what's the fate of this fledgling republic? What 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 struggles does it face? Because it had a a lot of work to do. The its entire the the content was in ruins because it had been ravaged by these near godlike beings, um, and there was a a very light hook that uh, I inserted saying they probably worked with a bunch of mages to get all this sort of reconstruction done in a, in a rapid pace. And what if these mages were not quite on the up and up? What if they used all the money they were owed to get some political leverage? And that was just kind of a dangling sort of, if you want to do a political intrigue sort of thing in Taldore, there is an open avenue for it because this Republic is new and young and fragile, and it has people who are ready to take advantage of it. Um, I wrote this book in 2016. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah. now, uh, this is one of the things where I'm like, I'm, I'm glad Matt trusts me to handle this vision because uh, 20 years later, the Republic still stands. It's fairly strong. Um, and its council is ruling with relative peace and prosperity. Uh, but all of these people in Teldari Council are... Uh, frazzled beyond belief. There's so much that goes into ruling a land like this. And uh, more than that, ruling it with sort of respect and care for a constituency rather than with the uh, unilateral sort of uh, motions of even a benevolent monarch. Mm -hmm. um, and I introduced a new faction in this book that uh, hasn't been spoken about yet so i won't go in I, I think i'm skirting the line here but i won't go into too much detail uh there's a faction in this book called the league of miracles that is a sort of direct continuation of this light hook that i established in the original whereas what if there was sort of this gig economy of mages a, a sort of centralized magical force who broke off from the major schools of magical thought, like the Arcana Pansophical in Tal'Dorei. And they said, what we care about is not sort of the advancement and study of magic like you nerds. What we care about is making a lot 
of money <laughs> and getting a lot of power. Um, and they do this, you know, kind of like the Uber of mages, they subcontract <laughs> out hard to anyone who will take on these jobs of rebuilding the continent. So people love them. Uh, they have these iconic cat-like, sphinx-like beings, one of which graces the cover of the book called Adrenax. And they do, they're, they're a very uh, shiny on the outside faction. But I think that as you read deeper into the book, you may find that they make an excellent villain for an intrigue-based Taldori campaign. Nice. Yeah. Um, so in addition to just kind of matching the timeline up, 20 years have passed, the, the political situation has changed. Uh, there are new factions emerging in Taldora right now, and they uh, and and they are acting in the wake of two incredibly uh, disruptive world events. The ones that Vox Machina saved Taldora from the Chroma Conclave, these dragons I'm talking about, and the wake of uh, a lich ascending to godhood, the Whispered One, which, while it didn't occur directly in, in Taldora. Uh, a lot of his followers were based there. And so now a lot of these cultists uh, are, are left without a cause. Their, their God did not achieve a sort of ultimate power on the material plane, but he's in the pantheon now. And so they're like, okay, what next? Uh, we, we got what we wanted mostly. Uh, and so now, but, but now we don't have the sort of centralized, unified power of our lich telling us everything we we need to do in order to support his master plan um everything has become very decentralized in Taldore. Yeah. uh the the world is no longer sort of controlled by by singular powers um and so people need to find their own way in the world whether you're heroes or villains i think that makes for a very interesting campaign setting yeah it, it really lets dms you know, move pieces around that otherwise would be fixed in place. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, yeah, it's a great design philosophy, world building philosophy to go with. And even, even more exciting for me than th this whole book is coming out. That's great. Uh, there's going to be a Beetle and Grimm box to go with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Beetle and Grimm box is a very, very much a mystery to me. I, I just got the sort of, uh, the set list for it in, in my email a couple of days ago. Um, but I've been so busy with other projects. I haven't sat and I haven't sat down and looked at it. That's yeah. cool. Um, that's fantastic. Well, honestly, uh, because you know, I, I, I may have been, been one of the leads on this book, but the Beetle and Grimm set is totally out of my hands. I'm almost inclined to just be like, I'm going to be surprised by this. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to be a child on Christmas morning when there this box comes out. <laughs> I'm wondering if you can speak a bit to this in that, you know, this, you started on this original project of the original Taldore as an intern at Geek and Sundry, which is where Critical Role was housed. Uh, the book was written in col collaboration with Green Ronin. Then Critical Role becomes its own separate entity, devoid mm -hmm. of, of Greek and Sundry. Uh, it works with wizards on Wildmount, which you do. Mm -hmm. And now they form their own company, Darrington Press. How has that transition, how have you seen that transition? Mm. I, 
I have loved watching Critical Role grow into what it is now. Um, Critical Role started where it needed to. Eakin Sundry was the perfect, perfect soil for the tiny, tiny Critical Role to sprout from. And there, there reached a point when neither Geek and Sundry nor Critical Role were good for one another anymore. Critical Role was so, it, it eclipsed everything else Geek and Sundry did. I don't even know if Geek and Sundry is around anymore. I think uh, it's, it's, it's had a rough, rough life. But I, I think they held on to Critical Role longer than they should have. I think it hurt them. Um, and Critical Role was, was straining at the at the boundaries that that geek and sundry had for it um so seeing that transformation makes me very happy i can see they're all thriving uh in their in their new environment you know they're they're learning a lot very fast and they're trying to grow really fast and and sometimes you feel the growing pains but they they have they have a, a vision and a mission and they're and they're fighting hard for it and i'm really happy to see that happen um and Just- it's it's like my my path is parallel. I, I like I wouldn't have done Dragon Heist if if the Taldori campaign setting hadn't wound up in Chris Perkins' hands, because because uh, Matt was one of their story consultants for that project also, um, and so all all throughout all throughout this having having Matt as a friend in critical role as sort of a stable place to you know almost call home yeah um it's 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 been it's been something that's that's grown up with me and so it's uh, it's it's really emotional actually (laughs) really emotional to see them thriving like this yeah it's 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 amazing it makes me very very happy it's really impressive to see daring to impress now take root you know you talked about those parallels with soil and plants and and it feels like that's <laughs> happening again with what darrington press is trying to do and i'm I very curious to see what darrington press does next yeah mm-hmm. yeah we're all very curious to see where it can it can go because yeah. critical role does provide so much opportunity financially which is one of the hard things in this industry is to have enough to to try to make dreams realized yeah um yeah I, I so I, I know nothing about where Darrington Press is going after this book, so I'm I'm free to speculate right along with you. Uh, <laughs> I uh, you know Darrington Press right now has published a number of board games. They've got board games and card games or, or, or something kind of a, in, in the wings, mm-hmm. and they also have a new role playing game by Matt Mercer called Syndicult that is in development right now, um, and that's. Syndicult has nothing to do with Critical Role. It has nothing to do with right. D and D. It's it's a it's a funky uh, sort of Illuminati ish <laughs> supernatural secret society ideas that Matt had and loved and just wanted to do, and he had the opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's awesome that their uh, that their trailer is not hitched inexorably to <laughs> uh, to Critical Role as a brand. Right. Um, but surely we're all wondering: Will oh, Critical yeah. Role make its own role playing game? Yeah. Will Will they yeah. divest from D and D and do their own Critical yeah. Role? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I just wrote a five E compatible Critical Role book for them. Well, uh, I think so. even yeah. when 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 this Reborn book was announced, 
I think a lot of us were very quickly reading this to scan to be like, does it say 5e, right? Mm-hmm. Or or when the summer game was announced, is it using 5e? Oh, okay, it is. You know, like, it is. it's almost, I mean, Critical Role is so big that one has to wonder these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sure, it, it's, surely it's inevitable, right? Surely they will, they will decide that, you know, it's, 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 if, if not from a creative standpoint, then maybe from a marketing standpoint, better to right. have their, their own in-house game where they yeah. don't have to worry about the whims of another company uh, right. to run their show. Yeah. Well, just, just business-wise, mm-hmm. it's the same thing as being associated with Geek and Sundry. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a good place to start, <laughs> but things change, you know, business change, yeah. marketing changes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, audiences change, rules change. Everything happens that at some point it just becomes restrictive rather than, uh, you know, rather than enhancing uh, to, to continue along in, with the same trajectory. So. I'll, I'll argue on my since we're doing speculation time, I'll argue otherwise in that with the agreement as it is now of using the OGL and all that, you don't lose money for writing 5e, right? And, and, and you just gain its audience. Um, whereas a lot of times if you're using IP, then you have to pay royalties or whatever. And that's a, that's a problem. Uh, but to the extent that you want to tell your story using these mechanics, you're not necessarily losing money. And the question is, how much do you gain by writing a book? And I sort of feel like Critical Role, if they want to write a book, it could be a coffee table book and it's going to sell fantastically well, mm-hmm. right? Um, their ability to launch a Kickstarter isn't the problem. It's really about what their vision happens to be. And so I think mm-hmm. if, I think, right, if they're excited by writing an RPG, then sure, do it and use that to tell your story a little bit better. But I I don't know that's necessarily what their goal might be. It might be, it might not be, but you know, maybe the rules don't even matter that much because 5e is plenty fine for them. Mm-hmm. And really it's about what else you want to express or do. Yeah. It's a good question. I, I think it 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 the the thing that it runs up against is what I would call the beholder problem. One of Critical Role's first main villains in an arc that I, they they have shown little interest in returning to, right? Their animated series is ignoring this arc of Campaign mm-hmm. One. Their first arc villain was a Beholder, uh, and the animated series is purposefully avoiding creatures like Beholders mm-hmm. and publishing under the OGL. This book can't can yeah. can, can only at at best obliquely mention. Right. You can't use Vecna. Yeah. Can't use Vecna. <laughs> can't use Mind Flayers. Can't use Beholders. Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, and so so the question is, if Critical Role... I, I, I should say one more thing first. And, and, and thus, Campaign 2 has avoided creatures like that to avoid future situations like this. In, in in my guess, anyway. It's possible sure, that Mattis sure. was tired of Beholders and Mind Flayers. <laughs> and, and so uh, but um, if they're going to do that anyway, if they're going to avoid the, the Owlbears and Beholders of the world, like, be, Owlbears are even in the SRD. They're an OGL creature, mm-hmm. but the OGL is very restrictive to role-playing game publishing, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do an animated series that has what is obviously an Owlbear in it especially when you're a company with the visibility of critical role, you will get mm-hmm. wizards breathing down your neck. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because you already have such a tie to D and D, it's not like you can just kind of explain it away. Um, I wonder. It's if interesting. It's Go ahead. Just along those lines, you know, MCDM recently said that one of their next projects uh, will be a monster book, and that they're basically rebuilding the monster manual. And that can't mm. help but wonder if that isn't the reason, right? Because now you can rebuild your monster manual so that everything else can be fueled by it because of those problems. And, and for folks who don't know, when you write an OGL project for somebody, which I've done a number of as well, you it's funny, like people who work for this company will tell you, hey, could you put a blah in there? And you're like, no, no, I can't. That's not mm-hmm. an OGL creature. I can't. Uh, oh, okay. Well, what about a, nope, can't use that one either. And and, mm-hmm. and if someone works for you and hands you something, they might, you have to go through the list of the monsters they use and go, actually, that has to swap out. Uh, yep. None of that. And and it comes up surprising amount of times. Surprisingly often. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of that, 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 that actually is one of those iceberg things. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you learn more D and D is you, you, you start to have a, a sixth sense for this creature. I don't think this is OGL. Oh, I need to check the SRD. All right. Ba, 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 ba. Control F. R Rust, mon- Rust Monster. Da, da, da. Oh, wait. Actually, that one is in the SRD. Rust Monsters uh, threw me for a loop uh, last night. I was going through a manuscript and it's like, surely Rust Monsters aren't in there. Oh, they are. Yeah. Oh, lucky day. Um, I think like a Banshee isn't, which bizarre. is. An interesting one that you're thinking, like, really? That's not okay. That's that's yeah. a mythological creature. That one yeah. uh, of any of them ought to be in there. Yeah. Methods. Methods are ones that people forget a lot because mm-hmm. they are the only wimpy little elementals in D and D. So you're like, oh, we need a wimpy elemental. Let's use methods. They're in the monster manual. Not in the SRD though. Not in the SRD <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Oh, well. well, we are right up against our time, so Whoa. I want to thank. Yes, it's true. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank James for coming on and talking with us. Uh, congratulations on all yeah. of this amazing work that's come out in the last few years. We have watched your meteoric rise with with glee, uh, and we yeah. hope that it continues. And I specifically hope it continues because now you're a coworker of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, just if we're gonna be honest, uh yeah, I'm a little I could be a little uh, uh and I don't know anything about your title and, and it's so fun for me to always guess what it might be in my brain. I'm you know yeah. I'm excited yeah. to see what this project will be. Yeah, it is uh it is moving along fast. Uh and you, you will find out soon. Soon, TM. Soon you will know. That's right. <laughs> so if people want to follow you on social media or find out you know what you're working on now or in the past, where can people find you, James? Uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter at James J. Hake. I'll bet, uh, I'll bet you find folks will put a link down somewhere in the notes. Uh, that is, that is a place to find me, uh, when you want to see my D and D updates, random blatherings, sort of scratchings upon the wall, Renfield style. Yeah, that's where you'll find me. And, and the, uh, the Taldoray campaign guide will be out at the end of 2021 or early 2022, I believe. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that can be found at the Darrington Press website and at certain game stores around the country, I believe. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that if you've got a if you've got a local game store, they will be ordering this book. Yeah. Uh, I, I can I, I, I would me. I would bet several quarters on it. 
All right. <laughs> and at, at Beetle and Grimm's, as we were saying. And at that, Beetle and Grimm's. That's true. That's cool. So thank you again, James. And thank you to all our patrons and all our listeners out there. Um, if you would like, you can support our show by going to patreon.com slash MMP. So, Teos, where can people find you? I mean, I'd rather follow James, but some people might want to follow yeah. you as well. You can follow me at James J. Haight, uh, <laughs> and you'll be way better off. But if you're so feeling to also add another, you can follow me on Twitter at AlphaStream or my blog, AlphaStream.org. And How you about can you, Sean? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So now that we have successfully had a tour of several continents of Exandria, what are we going to do now? Which of us are you asking? I'm asking anyone who will answer because I desperately need to know. My answer is that I want to get onto one of these little flying, uh, like, wing things that are in one of the pieces of pre-release art because those look super sweet. Yeah. And in in the meantime, we should probably just go kill some monsters. Maybe we could do that too. Okay. (laughs) Let's kill some monsters. Yeah. (laughs) 